where we stand. Let's uh, give this time to God. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful new day. And we pray that you would do beautiful new things within each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do be seated. I'm not really going to speak about our gospel lesson this morning, but it is a, an incredibly challenging one, not so. It challenges the very values that we, that we hold. Uh, Jesus turns our value systems upside down. Don't invite our friends and family. Invite the poor, the destitute, the outcasts. goes against all of our, our natural inclinations and the natural way in which we live our lives, I think. So let's just bear that in mind. Jesus challenges the way in which we, we live our lives. Uh, I want to really look at our passage from Luke, but let, uh, from, uh, from Jeremiah, but, but let's just start with uh, putting this day, the 1st of September, in context. Uh, I think that anybody who reads newspapers or watches television will, will acknowledge that we, we live in a time of the most incredible environmental challenges, not so. We turn on the television and we see fires in the Amazon, the, the, the lungs of the, of the world, uh, we see melting snow, uh, ice caps in Greenland and, and elsewhere. We see record temperatures across Europe uh, in their summer. We see uh, another hurricane barreling towards the United States. It's, it's a daily occurrence that we are reminded that I think it's undeniable that our weather is unpredictable, uh, that it is becoming more extreme, that global warming is not just myth, but in fact that it is a reality that we, we need to face up to and that our world in many ways is exceedingly challenged. Uh, to bring all of this slightly closer to home, did you know that our own country, South Africa, is ranked as the third most biologically diverse country in the world, uh, behind Brazil, which happens to be eight times larger than us, and Indonesia, South Africa covers less than 2% of the, of the Earth's surface, of the land surface, and yet it is home to 10% of the world's bird, fish, and plant species, and 6% of mammal and reptile species. Let me give you a few more facts and figures if you, if you like that kind of thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. There are more mammals uh, in South Africa than in Europe and Asia combined. Did you know that? We have over 1,000 kinds of trees while the whole of Europe has fewer than 70. South Africa has 10% of the world's flowering plants, more than 23,000. With more than 800 recorded birds, we have 8% of the world's bird species. We have 50,000 insect species, though I'm not sure who's counted all of that. We have 288 reptile species, which are 4.6% of all reptiles on Earth, and we have 11,000 marine species. But now the, the bad news. We have water systems. Uh, only 26% are intact. 54% are crit critically endangered. 50% of our wetlands have already been destroyed. Marine and coastal systems. Our fish stocks are being depleted, and our estuaries, the breeding ground of many fish, are being damaged, particularly around our urban areas. 34% of our land ecosystems are threatened, and that's our grasslands, our fainbos, our forests, and the succulent parts of the Karoo. 
and in terms of things that are endangered, 15% of our plants, 37% of our mammals, 14% of our birds, 24% of our reptiles, and 18% of our amphibians are on the endangered list. A quote, the present generation of humankind is the first one that can irreversibly transform our planet for the worse. It is also the last generation with the capacity to introduce the changes required to, to avert environmental disaster. Uh, this quote comes from a book written by two South African environmentalists and unfortunately, the quote was written in 1989. That's 30 years ago and half a generation ago. We're in trouble. And so today is the, the first of September, which traditionally marks the, the first day of spring. What a beautiful day we have for that. But it also marks the beginning in our calendar, in our church calendar, of a season that has become known as the season of creation. It is endorsed by the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and it has been uh, supported by churches around the world, Catholic and Protestant alike. It's an opportunity in the midst of all of the seasons of the, of the church year that focus rightly on Jesus, on his life, his death, on, the, on uh, the Holy Spirit and his work within the world and the church. It creates a little space for us just to look at the creation not just the creator, but this thing that God has made. And as he made it, looked and said, it is good, and it is very good. Our call as Christians is more than passively to acknowledge the challenges of global warming and climate change, but to commit ourselves to being part of, I believe, the solution. How do we solve the environmental problems around us. After all, we should understand better than anyone the heart of the Creator. We who recognize that all good things come from the divine Creator have taken too long to acknowledge that the living out of our beliefs concerns most deeply the care and nurture of all living things and the environment on which they depend. Those are the words of Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu. And so this morning, I just want to very quickly just look at the bigger picture uh, from Genesis to, to Revelation, uh, and I won't touch on every single verse, I promise, <laughs> but for us to get a picture of our call as Christians and our relationship to the environment in which we have been placed. Biodiversity refers to living things and the environment on which they depend and I think many people perhaps ask the question, why is biodiversity so important? Do we really need to care for every little blue butterfly, or even the rhinoceros for that matter, when there are children dying of hunger and parents jobless? Surely our priority is to bring about development and the eradication of poverty in our country. Surely that's our first priority as Christians. We have so many problems arising from poverty, homelessness, ill health, education, hunger, crime, violence, sexual, drug abuse. These are the things that we read about every day in the newspaper. Surely those must be our priorities as a community 
and for us as the church. Surely these are the things that we need to focus on before we then have time to focus on the environment. The reality is that the environment is that which surrounds us and provides our life support system. The environment includes the air we breathe, the water we drink, the soil in which we grow our crops. When God looked at creation, it was with that refrain, that repeating verse that he said over and over, God saw that it was good. God saw that everything that he had made was very good. And it's that line that reminds us that the whole of creation has value in God's eyes. It reminds us as, as worshippers of this God that God values the whole created order from the artvark to the zebra, from dung beetles to blue whales, the land, the sea, the air, and caring for the whole of creation demonstrates our love for God. A lack of care for the environment says something about our attitude towards the one who created everything. Lovely quote, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and in the clouds and the stars. I wonder if you can guess who, who said that. I won't ask you. It's Martin Luther. And there's a real danger that it's humanity. We've come to see all of creation as given to us, perhaps, for us to use and exploit for our own purposes, a selfish kind of attitude towards the beauty of, of creation. And until relatively recently, we as the uh, humankind have given very little consideration to the impact that we and our progress have made on this planet. But I want us to look at the second creation account, if you like, in, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. And it gives another perspective you know, in the first account, we're told that we are kind of lord and masters of all that has been created. But in the second account, in the second chapter, there is another pers perspective on the relationship that humanity is called to have with nature. The story opens with a, a garden into which the man, Adam, having been formed from the dust and given breath, was placed. The man was then commanded to till and to care for the soil. We are reminded that we are a part of nature, but with a particular responsibility for it. We have the privilege of sharing God's garden, but we are to be, to, but we are to be responsible in our use of it. In the garden story, there is a sense of God calling us to tend and care, to till and to cultivate a living and loving relationship with the earth from which we came and to which we will return. We are not separate from creation, but an interconnected part of it. And surely this is the better way of understanding our relationship with all of creation. God's representatives, made in God's image, his viceroys, his stewards, part of the created order, but responsible for it. As we read our passage from the Old Testament set for this morning, our reading from Jeremiah we can come to only one conclusion. And the conclusion is that 
From the moment that God creators, creates the earth and places us in charge, something very terrible goes wrong. And as we look around our planet, we can only conclude that something terrible continues to go wrong as we look around. From that passage in Jeremiah, let me remind you of, of uh, verse 7, a picture that I think is as relevant for today. And God says through Jeremiah, he says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Jeremiah was speaking into, into the land of Judah and around somewhere between 609 and 587 BC, moments before the exile into Babylon. And if you remember, God had promised and given to his people the land of milk and honey. Beautiful promise. God has brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruit and its good things, reminds Jeremiah. But what a powerful indictment. When you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Harsh words. And yet, maybe the same complaint can be leveled against us. God has given this beautiful planet for us to care for. But already one million of the five million species on this planet is under threat of extinction due to our activity. Rivers across the world, not just in South Africa, are polluted. And so on. We know it all already. But Jeremiah rightly identifies that at the root of the defiled land is, just, is not just an ecological problem, but it is a spiritual problem. His message was addressed to Judah, and he complains of the leaders, the priests, the teachers, the prophets, those who have influence, have abandoned God and have neglected their duty and turned to other things. They have forgotten their roots, the God who had been faithful to them in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, who had looked after them through their days of, in the wilderness, who had brought them to this land of plenty. They had defiled that land and had turned to other gods. And I think, as with then, as is now, that the state of our environment around the world mirrors a broken relationship that humanity has, not just with creation itself, but indeed with the Creator. There is a spiritual problem, and that problem finds its origin in our sin. The final verse, verse 13, says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the accusation is that the people had abandoned the water of life. That's an image that we as Christians, we of the New Testament, recognize so clearly as being imagery for Jesus and for the Spirit and for the, the well of resources that well up to eternal life that are ours to be had through our God. We have abandoned that God. But more than that, or maybe as a consequence of that, that the people of Jeremiah's time, and maybe ours too, have put their faith in man-made things, 
in those cisterns. Now, cisterns were amazing things. They were amazing feats of engineering uh, then and, uh, and now, too, as we look at them, as we look at them excavated. Those cisterns were a celebration of, of our capacity, of our creativity, of our skills, of our cleverness, but also of our self-reliance. Those cisterns, not nearly as good as what God had intended. Cracked, filled often with stagnant water, unreliable in the job for which they were created. And so people have turned from God with his promises and have put their reliance on other gods and on things that don't work nearly as well as the things that God has planned for us. I wonder as we look around our world whether we can identify the systems that we and our cultures have built, the things that we place our reliance on, that somehow become things that we rely on in place of God, the things in which we find our identities, the things in which we find our security, rather than in God himself and in his provision. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that we know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present moment. And so our understanding as we read Scripture from the Old Testament through to the New is that our failure to worship God, the failure of those folk then and through the ages to worship the one true God has had implications for our relationship with creation and that all of creation suffers because of our fall. But there is a solution. God in his grace has provided it. And in John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world. How often we, we rush as we read the, those familiar lines and we, and we think, well, for God so loved people that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. But the Greek word that is used there, which we translate so often into world, is actually the word, the word cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos. For God so loved the entire created order that he sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. So God's plans as they unfold are not just for us, but they are for the birds and the creatures and the insects, and the plants, and all of the creation that God declared to be so good. I think we as uh, biblical Christians have been incredibly slow to embrace the cause of the environment. You know, many of us grow up loving the bushveld and loving animals and so on, but we've been slow to involve ourselves in that movement that we see around us, the environmental movement which so often is led by people who come from you know, more radical persuasion, those who perhaps come from an Eastern kind of uh, religion, those radical crusaders for whom the environment itself has sometimes become something of a religion, a cause to be championed with all the zeal and self-sacrifice of a martyr. But we as biblical Christians sometimes have been quite slow. And maybe it's because... In our heart of hearts, we still carry around with us that idea that one day, that really the purpose of our faith and the really the purposes of Jesus 
is that we are saved for eternity and one day we will be whipped up to, to heaven. That the earth will be left behind. And in fact, as we read uh, Revelation, the promise there of a, of a new earth and a new heaven. That God will provide something brand spanking new. And so actually, well, well we don't need to worry about all of this. We can leave it to the the environmental crusaders, because one day we will be with Jesus forever in a brand spanking new earth. Maybe that explains our slow, our, our, our comparatively slow uptake. But what does the Bible actually say about God's plans? What does God actually say, what does the Scriptures say, about His plans for a new earth and for new heavens? There's perhaps a surprising discovery as we look at the, at the original, at the, at the Greek, as we look at the, the way in which the new earth and the, uh, the new heavens are described. Let me first of all say that in, in Greek, the word for new is neo, and it describes something that is new in time. If you were building a house from scratch, it would be neo it would suddenly have come into existence from nothing. It is neo. But there is another word in Greek that is uh, kainos. And it means new as well, and it can be translated as new, but it is something that is, rather than new in time, it is something that is qualitatively new. Something that perhaps better translated as renewed. And if you were refurbishing a house that was already in existence, you would talk about it as being kainos, not near. Something that has been made new qualitatively, not something new in time. And it's interesting that as Paul writes about Christians being made new, becoming a new creation in Jesus Christ, he doesn't say that we are near. He says that we are kainos, that as we become new creatures in Jesus Christ, we don't suddenly evaporate and something entirely new come into being. No, we retain who we are, but within us we are restored and made new by the work of the Spirit. And so it is the same description as we read about the new earth and the new heavens. Not neo, but kainos. An earth that is renewed, that is restored, that that which is bad is taken away and is brought in something that is refreshed and made renewed in God. You see, the final destination for God's people is not going up to heaven while the earth and the sky is destroyed. Rather, the final, yes, escape. Rather, the final destination is a renewed world and a cosmos in which God comes down to be with his people here. A new heaven and a new earth, and God present with his people. That has the most incredible consequences if you want to think about it. That this earth is important, and what we do to this earth now has consequences that ripple through into eternity. And the things that we do to restore and renew this earth, to protect and preserve that which is being damaged, have implications for eternity. 
And so on this day that we are called to pray for creation, on this day marking the beginning of the season of creation, our call is not just to become green Anglicans that work to preserve the environment in our spare time, as good as that might be, pick up litter on the beach, support the protection of the rhino, as good as both of those things are. Our call is to see us, ourselves, as, as an integral part of this creation, called to steward everything that God has made, both vulnerable human beings and the vulnerable environment in which we find ourselves. But even more important, perhaps, than, than doing that is that we know and have been entrusted with the solution to all things. We have the solution to the defilement of the environment that we see around us and that we are witnessing day by day on the television. The answer, the answer is Jesus. Simple. And we begin by looking around us and looking at the systems that our world has made and challenging them. Because the systems are an indication of the failed and broken relationship to which we are called to have with the creator of the universe. And we begin with ourselves. We begin by challenging our own identities and where we put our security. And then... The challenge is declare the risen Christ to this creation, to all of creation, and to work for the restoration of this world, and to ensure that the living water is offered to all. And so to end with those words from Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Amen.